since you can live and live and let live, no issue at all with, with neighbours. But if someone seems to, seems to be just st- stuffing their nose up it, mm. at the agency, the state, neighbours and everyone else, and, and it does affect people. They're, they're defecating in, in view of, I suppose, kids' bedrooms. Mm. And then you see the, the whole extent of what they've actually done. And 30 or 40 caravan loads of people actually just defecating in one spot. And when, when they've used up that, they move on five or ten metres up the way and, the, and for the whole length of a road. Mm. which is probably, what, four or five hundred metres of a road. They basically have turned it into a toilet. And then when you see individuals from your kid's bedroom actually standing there with their trousers around their ankle and sort of wiping their backsides mm. in full view of two young kids, mm. you see, it's, it's not something that you want to see, and that's not a standard that, that you expect normal people to live by. So this is the top road, and this is really where you have, on the one side of us, you have Anne Connor's site, and on the other side of it, you have what you could describe as Millionaire's Row. And then that is where residents have been complaining that is an open toilet. Just literally across the road from the houses. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. She was left widowed when her husband, the notorious burglar and underworld banker Fat Andy Connors, was shot dead at their home, known as The Ranch, in 2014. And since then, Anne Connors has been landed with a 2.5 million euro tax bill and the Criminal Assets Bureau have been granted judgment mortgages against a number of properties in her name. But instead of worrying about her troubles, Connors has turned her home into a massive unofficial halting site. And she's gone to war with the neighbours. So who is Anne Connors and what is going on in Sagart? This week, I'm talking to Sunday World journalist and author Eamon Dillon about the family at the centre of this dispute. He tells me about the life and crimes of Fat Andy and his gang, which struck terror right into the heart of rural Ireland. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So we're just heading down now to the road towards the um, the property in question, which is again a landmark in this area certainly the house the ranch is very well known you can see it from the road um but it's what's going on around it that is at issue here so if you're facing the ranch the field to the right big site to the right which has been concreted over and we can see that and there is a new entrance that seems to have been knocked through onto this main road that is not a property or a site that belongs to Anne Connors under the land registry, but this is one of the things that is concerning residents, locals in this area, that um, this site, this vacant site has been commandeered, that it has been concreted, um, and that there have been caravans that have been moved onto it. They're worried that something is, they're preparing to build something on it, and certainly by putting the new entrance out onto the the road, it does look as if that's happening. While people may know 
that road and that house, the ranch, and then onwards towards Tala, the house, the villa, and they're kind of learning landmarks coming into that Sagart area. Some people might know exactly who the Connors are and what's gone on on that land. Now, Anne Connors is currently the matriarch of the family, and she's the person who's listed as the owner of a lot of those properties. But Anne Connors was kind of um, a secondary figure for a long time to her husband, Fat Andy. And maybe, Eamon, you can tell us about who Fat Andy is and what his background was. I suppose um, Fat Andy would have hit the national headlines in, 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 I think it was uh, 2014, August 2014, when he was shot dead. It was a pretty horrific attack. He was hit six times by a, a, a mass gunman, died in his wife's arms. You know, apparently the children tried to stem the bleeding. Uh, up until then, you know, it was really only kind of uh, niche journalists like ourselves who really knew who Fat Andy was. Um, and I suppose to to summarize it, he, he would have been one of the he would he would have been probably the best known fence or person who is helping get rid of stolen goods um, from a wide community of basically professional burglars. A lot of them based in West Dublin, Wexford, Kildare, the Midlands, who would have had family links through the traveller community, um, and. He, he had relations on both sides of his family that gave him that status. I mean, he was very much, he, he wasn't just, um, you, know, a, you know, a gangster to them. I mean, he, he, would, he would have been known, like we, in the media circles, we would have known him as Fat Andy. Uh, among travellers, he, he would have been known as Pale Miley's Andy. His, his father was uh, Michael Miles uh, Michael Miles Connors, based in, uh, you know, around the kind of the Tala area. Uh, and he was a long-standing, you know, career criminal, like whose, whose convictions went back to 1959. And even, like, he died, he died in, in uh, 2014 as well. Or sorry, no, he died in 2016, two years after his son died. But the, a year before his death, or, or sorry, a year before... Um, Fat Andy was killed. He he picked up his ninety fourth conviction, which was basically driving some people to a break in, and he was the getaway driver. This man of seventy four. Uh, it wasn't long after that. Then he went into a nursing home, and when he died, it was uh, as a result. It was I think um, it was the effects of uh, dementia. But he he was, um, you know, he he was so Fat Andy. You, you know, it was a second generation professional housebreaker burglar who did well. Uh, who used these connections. Uh, he invested in property quite wisely, I guess, because I suppose the area where they were based, that part of West Dublin, you know, property prices would have just grown and grown and grown. And here was a guy with uh, a certain amount of cash. I mean, the house where he was shot dead was originally, I think it was the county dog pound, or that was an animal pound, which he had bought uh, and, and had, had built That's that house That's the ranch. On. That was the ranch, yeah. And I mean, he's and this is the property in question that sits in the middle of this site that Anne Connors has been developing, and which neighbours are very concerned by the amount of caravans coming on and off it, and by her movement onto another site that doesn't belong to her. And it's just an expanse best seen from the sky, really, when you when you look down on it. But um, sorry to interrupt you there about that. Pale Miley Connors was he was he originally a settled traveller or was he were they initially on the move his family? Well, they, they would have been they would have been based in 
initially would have been Wexford, that sort of area where they were originally from. And I think that's reflected in the fact that Fat Andy, after his murder, was buried in Gorey. And uh, Pale Miley then, after his death, was, was buried quite close to him. Uh, but I mean, kind of like all travellers at the time, they would have been attracted to kind of the main towns and cities where, you know, where they made their living. I mean, obviously there were just plenty of families who were finding legitimate work. But for these guys, there's no point in living out in the middle of nowhere where there's nothing to steal, which was the, the line of work they were in. I mean, on, on the other side of, of, of Fat Andy's family, you had um, Mercedes Mickey. Um, and Mercedes Mickey Wall, like his son, um, would be Andy Cockwall. Again, who is one of these prolific, uh, you know, burglars? Uh, like and Andy, Andy Wall would have been Fat Andy's first cousin, and then on the other side of Fat Andy's uh, family, his, another first cousin was um, Edward the Bullet Connors. So, I mean, the Cockwalls and the Bullet Connors; these guys were part of nearly twenty years ago. Were part of this gang that were originally kind of known as the Subaru Gang, which I think was a title the Sunday World gave him at the time because they had this preference for for using these cars for getaways. I mean, but like just to, if you if you recap on what they were doing, like the, the Subaru gang, they're also known as the cigarette gang. I think they were called the gypsy gang for a while. They were, they had this technique that just, it, it, and because of the way they did it, it just inspired fear. It really ramped up this whole fear of rural crime and that the guards were unable to deal with um, professional criminals. So they would case various kind of convenience stores, filling stations, shops, and what they were after were cigarettes, and that was it. And the first car would go down and would cut off the alarm system. You know, there was one, there was one crime spree in North Cork one time in South Tipperary where they, they hit up um, five different locations, but cut a fibre optic cable that knocked out the telephone systems for 4,000 homes at the same time. So they were quite sophisticated in that way. They'd use angle grinders, cut off the padlocks, deaden the alarms, even radio alarms. Uh, you know, they were, they were able to jam the signals um, and they'd leave it alone and it would look like it was normal. So there was a passing guard of patrol. They'd just see a normal shop or a normal filling station without realizing the whole thing was already unlocked or the padlocks had been taken off. And then the second car down would be something like a, um, a Volvo 740 in a state and that would be reversed in through the shutters. It would just be smashed in that car would drive away and then the high-speed car would come in and they'd walk into the shop and they'd break into the, the cigarette cabinet, they'd fill up the boot and they would do that five times a night. And they would do it on a Monday, on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday night when they knew there'd be no nightclub traffic, there'd be no guards out looking for drunk drivers. It'd be in the dead of night and they'd, they'd take off at high speed. Um, if the guards came up, even if the guards arrived in the forecourt of these filling stations while they were in the robbery, they wouldn't particularly hurry up because they knew the chances were they were dealing with two um, you know, uniformed, unarmed guards, and they had full confidence in their drivers who drove with absolute reckless abandon. I mean, the Subaru, now, I mean, they got the nickname the Subaru Gang, but the Subaru at the time, if you had the chipped rally version, could do 230 kilometers per hour, and the relatively new um, motorway network at the time, they just, I mean, the guards weren't allowed to, to chase after them. By the time they even, you know, were able to alert um, officers in the next county to put the stingers out, they were gone. So, I mean, there were, until really kind of the helicopter was, was, was used better, it kind of put the kibosh on that. But, I mean, they absolutely stole millions. I mean, it's estimated, you know, some of these guys, they were, they were stealing, you know, on, on a good night, up to 70, even 100,000 euro worth of cigarettes in, in a single sweep. 
Um, and those, I mean, the, the stolen cigarettes were as good as cash. They were, they were gone into kind of bench shops, sold door to door in, in West Dublin within hours. And I mean, you know, you know they, they just, they made a fortune on that. And like, there's one story I remember a, a guard telling me about, they were trying, you know, they were, they were chasing them or they weren't, you know, they were trying to, to catch up with them. And the car was driving with no lights and the back window uh, out came a spotlight. They were trying to dazzle the guards with a spotlight. I mean, you know, they had absolutely no fear. Um, and they, they, they were, they, you know, they, they were so cool and calm about it and brought such a kind of a ruthless professionalism to it that for a while they gave the impression that they, they could just operate with impunity. So you had Fat Andy and his two cousins and um, between them they were choosing areas of rural Ireland and they were hitting it night after night. Were they also um, running burglaries into rural households? Were they actually burglarising houses as well and, and taking savings from elderly people? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was all part of it as well. I mean... The kind of the smash and grab of the Subaru gang would have been, you know, a rich vein uh, in terms of an income stream, but also looking for, you know, useful targets where there was, you know, a haul of jewellery was always something they were after as well. I mean, that's what, you know, one of um, Andy Cockwall's uh, significant jail sentences came from. He was caught in Longford with, with stolen jewellery. And similarly with... Uh, I think the Bullock Connors was called as well as the Jewellery Robbie and Killarney, which even the fact that you were talking about Killarney and Longford just shows you how expensive they were in, you know, going right across the country any 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 time of the year. So, I mean, there were always, like, I mean, Fat Andy, you know, at the, you know, at the point of it in his life when he was, you know, a millionaire and he was an underworld banker at this stage, and he was still doing robberies. You know, it was like a lifestyle. It's like some of us go out and play tennis or a round of golf or go watch a rugby match. But I think for Fat Andy, like, you know, dropping off a couple of burglars and waiting outside, you know, he was still doing it when he didn't need to do it. And you wonder, like, you know, what motivated him? You know, so there was always this, I suppose, there's an element of that restlessness about these guys. You know, they can't sit still. Uh, and and it's just it's it's what they did, and it's. But it, I think part of it was the the whole prolific nature of their crime as well. That kind of it just it just well on the face of it, breaking in and stealing cigarettes looks like a minor crime. You know, breaking in and and, and stealing jewellery looks like a relatively minor crime. But if you're doing five or six of these a week, and you're getting ten percent or five percent or whatever it is, it becomes a massive business. Mm. And they were certainly hard working. They weren't afraid of going out every night, night after night. I remember at one point, um, you know, and there was obviously always calls to protect people and businesses in rural Ireland and how that was going to happen. And, you know, these marauding gangs that were travelling around the country, which was largely our friends in the Subaru gang, uh, causing most of it. I think there was a figure at one point put on the amount of members, and this would obviously be proliferate types that were perhaps staying at home, giving alibis for them, etc. Maybe moving those cigarettes, moving some of the stolen goods. But there was a figure at one point that there was 200 of them. Was that right? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, uh, it's wide open, really. But I mean, there was certainly a hardcore of 80. And you're talking about people directly involved in, in the crimes. So, I mean, for everyone that's directly involved, there has to be at least another two or three. So, I mean, 200 is probably a... It could even be a conservative estimate, but it, mm-hmm. but again, it kind of I suppose it speaks to the kind of the the size of the network and how focused in a way that you know everyone had their task and everyone knew what was what was you know what was supposed to happen. You might necessarily have a particular you know um, role in a particular plan, but everyone knew what the the end 
destination is and you know what the end goal is. And everyone just worked towards that all the time. So if somebody needed a car, there was going to be a car there. If somebody needed a, you know, a third body or a, you know, somebody needed a driver or somebody who could use an angle grinder, there was someone there. So, I mean, it was a loose collection of, of criminals that would work together and interchange. Now, the villa, which is on the Blessington Road and which was the, the first property really that was a showpiece for Andy Connors, Fat Andy, um, and his wife, Anne Connors, um, it became the target in around 2002 or 2003 of the Criminal Assets Bureau. Still, I suppose, newly enough established at that point and... Andy Connors became a target. And from memory, the property was identified, but for some reason, the Bureau, I think, took a revenue case at that point instead of a proceeds of crime case. Despite the fact that the Connors had amassed quite a bit of property, uh, quite a bit of land, and had never worked legitimately in their lives. But I think they were probably doing what a lot of the traveller crime gangs do, and they sort of are able to say that they buy and sell a few horses and they buy and sell a few caravans and they make a few bob here and a few bob there. And it's difficult to investigate a lot of traveller crime gangs, isn't it? They're, they're transient, their identities mightn't be quite clear, um, and they're, they're clever. Yeah, uh, well, there's no doubting like, how intelligent some of these, these guys are and how they op- operate. And some of them, to the detriment of their own community, do use members of their own community, often... To, with an element of coercion to help them, you know, launder the proceeds or or just, you know, they're dragged in, you know, somewhat against their will to to help out in the business. So, I mean, that that does go on. But, I mean, the, the villa was, uh, I think the tax demand originally from the Criminal Assets Bureau was uh, 100 and, 160,000. And uh, so he, he put it on, he put it on the open market with a, a price tag of 3 million so it didn't sell, and it's still. I think it's still in the in the family estate, uh, and it's still mm-hmm. being used. I mean, back then it was being used as as a, a kind of a, a, a kind of a come and go place where people park up their caravans for a couple of weeks. You, you pay your rent. It was described at the time as you know this really large, but empty house with you know full of brand new carpet, brand new fittings, but really wasn't used for anything really except a, as a kind of a an open display of wealth and. I mean, it was it was a really imposing like mansion at the time. I mean, there wasn't really much out that way at the time before all the other side towards City West got developed. Uh, you know, and it really did stand out, and, and it really and, and there was no like a, he didn't live in it. He lived in the, the the caravan around the back. It's here somewhere. That's it there. I mean, it's anybody who passes up and down this road would know it. It's just fallen into worse and worse repair over the years, but it's like a kind of a... I mean, there's pictures of fat Andy Connors and and his wife, Anne Connors, outside it, posing for photographs when they first bought it. Yeah, the houses are just icons of their shows, of their wealth, their success, their power, um, and they'd rather have it in this condition even and still be seen as owning it than hand it over to the state. 
So that was around 2004. He put the house up for sale and I, from memory, he eventually did settle the tax bill reluctantly or the revenue bill. But a second case was taken by the Criminal Assets Bureau. They were investigating him around the time of his murder and following his murder, nine properties were identified which were in the possession of Anne Connors, his widow. She had inherited them on his death and a second revenue case was taken by the Criminal Assets Bureau um, in relation to those properties. Um, the ranch where he had been killed, and which is the the, this, the property where, um, which is currently now uh, causing concern for locals in the in the Sagart and uh, Rathcool area. But that property was one of them identified. There was lands in and around. Um, Slade Road and there was properties around Tala but nonetheless same situation you put them up for sale and if you charge too much they don't sell and what you don't get pushed to to force through a sale the Criminal Assets Bureau because they've taken a revenue case have to wait for Anne Connors to come up with the money it seems it seems very peculiar to me and I do think mistakes were probably made that a proceeds of crime case wasn't taken. Perhaps that's being untangled at the moment um, and, and maybe the, the Criminal Assets Bureau will try and go for them again. But um, it's, it's actually, it's interesting that you bring up that case which you were at in the High Court because um, Anne Connors rang up the Sunday World one time and uh, wanted to give an interview, which our colleague Pat O'Connell did, in which she denied that she was dealing with cab and in fact she was dealing with revenue. And uh, and Pat asked her about the, the 4,000 or the 40,000 euro Rolex watch that her husband was buried with. And she said, oh, that was a gift from friends. And she denied any dealing with any kind of, you know, any kind of crime, you know, that yes. any of the proceeds, any of the family wealth had come from crime. Um, and just just flatly denied, like all the yes. allegations that have been, you know, and, and not just the allegations, but the, you know, the successful convictions against so many family members. And she always has been like that. I mean, I have had brief interludes with her in the past. Um, they mightn't have been perhaps as friendly as Pat O'Connell's uh, with her, but she was always at pains to defend her husband and to say that he was not a criminal. He was not involved in any burglary gang. He was an honest, hardworking man. He was a horse trader. She always described him as and that he'd made his money buying and selling these, you know, these these horses that that do move around the travelling community. Um, but he does have or did have a conviction and he was caught a number of times while he he slipped the net a lot during his lifetime, Fat Andy Connors. He did get caught and with a son of his. Yeah, I mean, he had 19 convictions when he died um, and one of, one of the sons uh, he was convicted with, uh, John Connors, he's also known as Jonathan Slusey, uh, was a, a name that he'd used in the UK and he, he was arrested by Northampton police who'd carried out a surveillance operation and they were actually listening live to this gang. They copped on that there was a group of uh, of burglars that were carrying out these raids where they were targeting um, the owners of Chinese restaurants. So that, I presume they would have thought that some of these restaurateurs weren't, uh, you know, being upfront entirely with the tax revenues in that jurisdiction and were bringing home the cash. So they'd, they'd wait and see. They were watching the restaurants. Um, and they'd figure out who the boss was. And then they were putting tracking devices on their cars and tra- and tracking them back to see where they live. And then when the boss went back to the restaurant, they would break into the house. And that was, that was, um, that was the modus operandi they were using there. So he, he's actually wanted, he's featured on Crime Call. 
So I, I, I don't think he's the, he's the only member of the family to have uh, featured on, on the, you know, sorry, UK's Crime Watch. And then there's also, I think, family members have been on the Irish version of, the, of Crime Call as well. So Eamon, Jonathan Slusey, as you're, as you're calling him, he would be third generation. So Pale Miley Connors, who we started out with, would, be, would have been his grandfather. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, and you have another, like Jonathan, or Jonathan Slusey, he'd have another cousin, Larry Connors, who at the age of 22 had dozens of convictions, including breaching seven bonds of good behaviour, you know, in, in relation to more than a dozen um, cases at the time, again, involving burglaries and break-ins, and uh, I think one where he assaulted um, some people with a hockey stick. So, I mean, look, it's, it just seems to be, you know, it, it's a, a family tradition, I think, that's passed on from some members of each generation to the next um, and, mm-hmm. and and it's certainly it's something that like the the gangs that were targeted by Operation Fiacla, which is the Garda plan to try and and kind of curb some of the activities of the more active members. Um, it, it was certainly it was noted that in some cases they would have brought along underage kids, you know, who were taking part in the burglary. So I mean, they were being kind of taught from a very young age. You know, this is how you break into a house, and this is how you this is how you go to work essentially. Because as far as they're concerned, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just doing what their, their, you know, their, their own older relatives are teaching them to do. Mm-hmm. Going back to Fat Andy's murder in 2014, there has been nobody charged in relation to that, but there has been one arrest of a known um, INLA member. And what is suspected there is that, you mentioned earlier, Eamon, that, that Fat Andy was a banker, an underworld banker. So let's explain that firstly before we, we describe what is suspected happened with his murder. If you're somebody from whatever background you're in, um, even if you want to borrow €20,000 for a trailer and you've got a lot of convictions, you know, the chances are you don't have an official income. So even the credit union isn't necessarily going to help you out. So you, you really don't have any choice except to go to, you know, someone like Fat Andy to help you out. And I mean... And it, and it was seen, like that was seen as a social service, you know, among some of the people I've spoken to. I mean, like he was well got by a lot of travellers. He wasn't seen as as any way troublesome. He he was a lovely guy. He he turned up the the, the night he was shot. He, he'd gone to take part, you know, in the celebration for some, another a distant relative's wedding, you know, a young couple. And it was a great honour for them to have Fat Andy to turn up and show a bit of largesse and all the rest. I, you know, like, you know, he he wasn't he wasn't seen as a sinister, crazy figure like at all. So I mean, he's the kind of guy that you know a young couple starting out would borrow money from. No more than, you know, people from the wider community might get their mortgage or get a you know get a certainly get a, a bridging loan, so to speak, or whatever, or a handout from your parents or grandparents to get your foot on the property ladder. So like he was one of those figures, but as well as that, the, like what, he he never had a reputation for being involved in drug dealing. But characters like Farandi would have lent money to people who quite possibly would have gone on then to invest that money in drug deals. Again, it's not something that you can really go to the business section of the Bank of Ireland to say, look, I have this great idea for an import-export company. And, you know, there's a guaranteed sort of, uh, you know, by seven markup on the product that I'm planning to move in. And like, it'll go great. It's a, a wonderful business plan you have here. And what what is the commodity, by the way? And that would obviously be the end of the, the loan <laughs> application. So, but that's how it works. And I mean... You know, and, and again, like, you know, there would have been, you mentioned the, the horses earlier on, and like a, a lot of those ponies would often be financial markers 
So you'd have, a, you'd have a horse that would have a good reputation as a sulky racer, which are those kind of street races. And I mean, and in the open, wider market, they're worth, they're a couple of hundred quid. I mean, they're not particularly, you know, um, sought after horses in the wider community, but you could have one of those that's worth 50,000 euro. And it's often used as a way of, of moving 50 grand, say, between here in the UK or from here to Cork or wherever, or as a way of, of kind of collateral to, to guarantee a loan. So, I mean, that's a whole separate area, but that was one of his, one of his roles. So it, it, it makes you wonder, like, why was he still going around with, uh, you know, gloves and, and, and screwdrivers, like, in, in the, in, right up until his death? For sure. So sometimes the, uh, the underworld and the legitimate world can collide, and it does appear that perhaps um, Andy Connors would, well, people close to him would claim that he lent money, uh, was looking for it back and that deals were reneged. Unfortunately, in that underworld, as you say, it's not legitimate. There's no um, receipts. There's no um, agencies overseeing that business is fair. And I think things got dirty and uh, Fat Andy was said to be putting a lot of pressure on a a businessman and um, perhaps that's the reason he got killed. But... Nobody was ever convicted of his his murder. And while that investigation is ongoing, um, there doesn't seem to be any charges, you know, coming down the line for anyone just yet. Um, His funeral was pretty sensational. He was buried in a a cask, casket supposed to be worth 40,000. He did gold Rolex on his no, arm. I think, I think the cask was, was worth more than 40,000. The cask was 100,000. The watch on his arm was the 40,000. And, and you can be sure that the, the, the large ornate granite memorial that's down there is, is into the similar six figures, if not, you know, well, certainly five figures, maybe six figures as well. And you know, Eamon, myself and uh, one of our photographer friends was actually down in Gorey that uh, afternoon that the, I would say, eight, ten foot statues of Jesus, Mary and Joseph were winched across the graveyard by a crane and placed on top of the marble uh, tomb that had, had etched across it, big, fat, rich Andy Connors. And that's how he's remembered in that graveyard. Um, the uh, the grave is a place where the family go every year, but it's it continues in death to be a show of his wealth and a show of his prowess. Um, and you know, it's it's uh, it's certainly you know it's pretty jaw dropping. I have to say the the gravestone and, and and what stands over it. But a couple of interesting things have happened since. 2014. I don't know if you know anything about it, but um, last year, a number of people were caught digging up 70,000 euro in cash and uh, they were found in a field. Uh, They were arrested by the Garda's Drug and uh, Organised Crime Bureau. Um, Some of them were said to be associates of Fat Andy and it's believed that the money was possibly some of his fortune. Um, is this something that is suspected that he's buried money all over the country and that, uh, you know, the family kind of maybe or certainly associates of his might know where some of that is? I think that was actually part of the problem in the immediate aftermath of his death was that when he died, like the money went with him. Like it was certainly something I was hearing that, you know, there was, there was all sorts of initially, not not now from his immediate family, but there was all sorts of kind of 
rumors of calls for uh, revenge on the people suspected to have, to have been behind it. And that, you know, again, part of Andy's financial role was to invest or to hold the cash from all the various cousins involved in different criminality who were in and out of jail or didn't have the same, you know, capabilities that he had in terms of being able to kind of turn the cash into something useful. Uh, and so it's quite possibly that there's caches of cash that are buried deep all over the place and that Fadandi might have been the only person who knew where it was. And so these people who would have entrusted their ill-gotten gains with him have lost everything. And that was certainly that was certainly something that was being said to me at the time, that there's a lot of angry people who've, you know, that's it. You know, Fadandi's gone and so is their cash and there's there's literally no way of getting it back. Anne Connors would suggest that she is trying to make ends meet in doing what she's doing up up at the ranch. Um, the neighbours and locals would object. They feel that they follow the law of the land, they pay their taxes and they have no problem with her being there, but they want her to be policed in the same way they would if they tried to expand their properties without permission, without the necessary sanitary facilities, etc., etc. Um, do you think she is broke or do you think she'll ever follow the law? Well, I mean, she turned up to Pale Miley's funeral in, you know, a lovely white Range Rover. Um, I think you were at the, or sorry, you weren't necessarily at, but you were near the 2017 wedding of of uh, Jonathan Slusi and the kind of, you know, it wasn't a cheap affair. And there was another wedding, I think uh, another member of the family was married in 2019. And again, this didn't seem to be any shortage of cash in terms of renting uh, limousines and, you know, the, the the Cinderella horse and cart and, you know, the fabulous sequined wedding dresses of, of, of the bride and all the rest. So, I mean, you know, it, it's, I, I don't think she's broke. I mean, I'm sure she's not, made, you know, she's probably not seeing the same amount of wealth flowing as, as was there when the dynamo that her husband was in terms of making cash. So I'd say there is a certain amount of um, kind of lifestyle change, all right, but I, I doubt she's broke. And as regards sort of following the law the way that the neighbours and the other locals would like to see her do, um, that's not really something that's there in, 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 the, in the sort of the history of, of the Connors clan, is it? No, and I mean, I mean, why would you necessarily pay attention to minor details like planning permission or, you know, organising to pay for services or electricity connection that might cost eight grand. I mean, why would you bother with small details like that? I mean, that's something you don't bother with. You just get on with connecting electricity yourself and doing what needs to be done to make your your, your house and your site, you know, useful to you. And I mean, I, I don't think they'd be alone in that. I mean, there's plenty of other individuals around the country that operate that way. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that it's just limited to members of the traveling community, there's plenty of people who are quite happy to ignore um, planning regulations when it comes to developing property. So, but yeah, I mean, in the scheme of things, I mean, with, with the background of Fat Andy's family and certainly the, the, the core members who are involved in, you know, serious criminality, I mean, it's a minor detail. I mean, why, why would you care? And what do you want to see happening? I mean, obviously you're in contact with Dublin, South Dublin County Council. What can the authorities or should the authorities be doing? My perspective, bottom line, is just um, remediate it, put it back to the way it was. I mean, the thing is, it's, it appears to be from all the planning 
applications from the health, the health side of things that um, there's an awful lot of things that have actually been contravened and just, just put the thing back. And if, if you want to apply for planning, fine. If you want to take someone else's land, pay for it. But repeat it and put it back to the way it was and go through the normal channels that everybody else has to go to. That's it's bottom line. From Sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent.